Hi everyone, I'm your host, Daniel Lee, and welcome to OMD Daily, a podcast about investing in people. Every Monday to Friday, I share with you what I learned the day before from studying people and companies through conversations, whether it's through interviewing investors and business leaders, to reading books and financial reports, and digesting learnings from all the other storytelling mediums out there. The goal is to build my own PhD in combining human performance with investing to figure out how I can help leaders build utopian companies. By exploring my own curiosity, I hope to become a little wiser every day and hope this adds a little nugget of learning to you on a daily basis. Hey everyone, welcome back to OMD Daily. Today is June 4th, 2020. Um, today is a company learning. I took my time to learn about Lululemon today, so it'll be my first pass look at the company. Uh, as you can hear from my sigh, it's a sigh of disappointment. I don't really want to start tone on a negative note, but that's just kind of how I felt uh, after starting my crusade into the company early in the morning. I had many things I was excited about. Um, I was super interested to learn more about the business, and I'm kind of coming out of it kind of deflated, to say the least. Um, But like always, I used the Phil Fisher 15 points with some, I'm slowly making modifications to it. Um, but yeah, using that as a baseline to do my analysis of the company and share with you kind of what I'm looking at. And as always, there's always more of a culture management tilt in how I look at companies. So I'll try to kind of cover more on that side as well. And that's where really the disappointment is in the company. Um, usually I go over the 15 points in the past, but I think I'll try to, let's say, focus on the key ones to highlight. Um, and if you want to read more about the kind of full report, you can go to my site at OMD Ventures and all the uh, write-ups will be there available to you. So how to start this? Well, I think the the first point is always the most important um, on Phil Fisher's checklist. Does the company have products or services with sufficient market potential to make possible a sizable increase in sales for at least several years? AKA, are they solving an important problem? problem for a large enough market and what do they even do so most people are probably familiar with lululemon they make yoga pants and they made it fashionable they in my opinion they are the company that made athleisure into a thing if i think about athleisure i think lululemon and that's one of the reasons i was excited to learn about the company and the other is that um well, there's actually multitudes of factors. One is the fact that the stock price is pretty high up. You know, I think right now, as of today, the stock price is exceed north of $300 per share. I generally like companies that have expensive stock prices. Um, it it kind of indicates to me a management that doesn't do stock splits. And I'm a huge fan of management that doesn't do that um, because I think it pushes away the very short-term minded trading type of investors which i don't really want to be involved with and there are other factors like how it's you know a company based in my hometown of vancouver so i kind of wanted to cheer for that business um i also have i guess that i could say i'm passionate about um the fitness wellness world um although i don't really like that kind of jargon Regardless, I also want a company like in that realm to do well. So I was also excited to learn more about Lululemon and also just the fact that 
I have some pretty cultish friends um, who are obsessed with the brand. So that was something of an exciting point as well. But yeah, I was hoping all that would kind of uh, work its magic and make me believe that the company would have a sufficient capacity and the market potential to grow. And I figured it's probably also good to share some uh, history of the company, which I've never really knew about until reading about it today. So the company was founded in 1998 by Chip Wilson. Uh, his uh, I think legal name is Dennis J. Wilson. And it was founded in Vancouver. Uh, I think it was born inside of a yoga studio and then it eventually became his full-fledged store. Um, Wilson, according to Wilson, and this is his quote, ultimately Lululemon was formed because female education levels, breast cancer, yoga athletics, and the desire to dress feminine came all together all at once. So that was what he said, and so he kind of attributes the power woman of the 80s and 90s getting tired of trying to fit into the boys club as a key reason for Lululemon coming into existence and the desire for athleisure and nice-fitting yoga pants. Needless to say, uh, this probably drew a lot of controversy, and as you will kind of realize looking into Lululemon's history, it is it has always been kind of a controversial company. Even the name Lululemon doesn't mean anything. According to Wilson, he picked... Okay, I'll actually just read what he said because it, it's just so much better when he says it. It was thought that the Japanese marketing firm would not try to create a North American sounding brand with the letter L because the sound does not exist in Japanese phonetics. By including an L in the name, it was thought the Japanese consumer would find the name innately North American and authentic. In essence, the name Lululemon has no roots and meaning and means nothing other than it has three L's in it. Nothing more, nothing less. So that's what that's the reason behind <laughs> um, Lululemon as a name, so that it sounds more North American to Japanese people. And I think um, so. Vancouver has a pretty prominent Japanese community. And this company was founded in the late 1990s. And I wonder if the prominence of the Japanese economy during the 90s and I think even part of the 80s, um, you know, when they were practically buying, owning everything in the U.S. and, you know, how they built a huge uh, community in Seattle as well um, with Nintendo buying out everything made Wilson believe that the Japanese would become kind of a key customer base for Lululemon. I'm wondering if that was the kind of theory and he wanted to be attractive to them. And in that in that regard, um, Lululemon's apparently target market is what Wilson called a 32-year-old professional single woman named Ocean who makes $100,000 a year. And I don't know if this received any controversy, but I think this is actually spot on um, for who really loves Lululemon. Like if I think about um, the kind of people that I imagine and the kind of people that um, I see wearing a lot of the kind of athleisure gear, it's that kind of person. <laughs> I think everyone kind of understands what I'm talking about. Um, but yeah, so that's kind, of, that's kind of how the company was founded. Very weird, uh, not your average day company. And I think that needs to be the case when a yoga pants company becomes a $41 billion market cap business. Lululemon's own corporate management, um, the annual report writers call them the designer, distributor, and re retailer of healthy lifestyle-inspired athletic apparel and accessories. Yeah. 
I guess that's simple. I'm not sure. But the business really has three, um, I guess it really has two segments. They separate the revenue out into three segments, but it's really two. About, um, I think, six more than 60, like 65% of their sales come from company-operated stores. So the in, um, you know, the stores you see in malls, etc., that are owned by, operated by Lululemon. And then another like 20, let's say 3% come from their e-commerce. So direct-to-consumer when people just buy off the website. And the remaining is others, which is kind of their wholesale, um, where like warehouse stuff, outlet, and some like licensing um, based, I guess, selling that they do when they try to break into like new markets. Like that's what they do with um, the UAE and Mexico, I believe. So generally, they have the two big segments, and um, store sales is really like the big component of the business. M- most of its sales come from North America. Some, I think. Approximately 75% of their 491 stores are based in North America, and the remaining 25% are scattered throughout uh, 16 different countries. Although I think the majority are in China, um, because that's kind of the new frontier for them, which leads to kind of the potential for the market expansion. And executive the um, management has said that international expansion is kind of where they're looking for, I think. Um, they're focused on everywhere, really, APAC, EMEA, the whole gambit. And they're con- you know, they have, they're opening these individual stores, they're branching out with e-commerce. I think they launched e-commerce in Japan. They launched the, the first store in Germany uh, last year. So they're slowly trying to test the waters and see if their brand works overseas. And over, I think if we even if we look at the last ten years, they've done pretty well. Like, like the current market cap kind of is um, kind of a testament to that. The company has grown top line the rev, uh, revenue at a CAGR of twenty four percent over ten years, and that's not a easy feat for a company that started out selling yoga pants. It just it just boggles my mind that a company that had that singular kind of apparel product was able to do that. And comparatively, a company like Under Armour, which was once something like a $40 billion company, has declined to what is now a $4 billion, $5 billion company. And now Lululemon is arguably like only a third in relation to Nike's market cap, which some some might go like, wow, insane. And so this makes me wonder though, yeah, like how does the company really have sufficient market potential? Um, Allied Market Research has said the sports apparel market um, was valued at around $167 billion in 2018. But I think Lululemon is definitely unique in that it's not just a sports apparel like I personally own two Lululemon products. I I had uh, family and friends twist my arm to eventually, I guess, quote unquote, invest in their products. I've always felt it was too expensive for my taste. And to be honest, I don't even wear my Lululemon shorts in the gym because I think they're too expensive <laughs> to be worn when I do powerlifting training. Um, and so I'll just wear even cheaper pants for my actual training. And so Lululemon just becomes part of my outerwear wardrobe and I think that's the thing behind Lululemon like the fact that they are the company 
that inevitably made the kind of consumer behavioral change where it's become socially acceptable to wear athletic wear where there's something called athleisure as like a fashionable um, like a fashion category and it's this kind of brand they've cre- created this mind share they have as this kind of lifestyle brand where someone who wears lululemon or shops there it it says something about the person it could you know, it's kind of like what Patagonia used to, used to stand for, where if you had Patagonia stuff, you were this kind of outdoorsy person who cared about what Patagonia stood for. Although now one can arguably say that Patagonia, like I think my friends in um, Silicon Valley say Patagonia is called Patagucci because it's kind of worn by the douchebags in finance and people who just want to look like them. So it's kind of lost its meaning in that regard. I'm sorry, Yvonne Chouinard. That's kind of what has happened. And, but I think Lululemon is kind of, you know, with the target market of this ocean character, I think they've actually achieved what they want. Like the people that wear Lululemon and get attracted to the brand are people who want to um, kind of showcase a bit of ego. Like it's the people that want to wear clothing that accentuates their body. Like it, so there's that element of lust you're selling to the heart. And there's the element of ego where you shop at a store that is obviously selling pretty you know, high ticket items for t-shirts and pants, really. So I think if we look at the company from that angle, it makes it, it differentiates it definitely from traditional sports apparel. Like it's more closer to what I'd say like LVMH is than Nike. And apparently in Korea, like fitness YouTubers call Lululemon the Chanel of yoga pants. So I think the rest of the market is aware of that. And that is the perception that Lululemon gives off. So if I think about it that way, I think there definitely is a potential runway for it. Um, although the business itself isn't solving any important problem. Like the company is that it's a nice to have product. If Lululemon didn't exist, some other company will probably come in and fill the void. I have no doubt about that. I think someone, some new company will come in, fill the void or... I don't know, maybe Burberry, Burberry will say, we're going to make yoga pants and make it into a thing. But the, although they do have a cult fan base, I just I just can't get comfortable around saying that they have this large um, market potential. And that leads to my, my first big gripe with the company, which is the management. Um, and this... The reason I use Phil Fisher's checklist as the foundation is because he focuses a lot on management and a lot, and I might just go kind of all over the place here because, and I might just kind of combine all of Fisher's management focus into this one giant uh, rant. But the second point uh, Fisher has on his checklist is, does management have a determination to continue to develop products or processes that will still further increase total sales potential when the growth potentials of currently attractive park lines have largely been exploited. I don't think so. I think it's weak. Um, I think management is extremely short-term oriented and I, this is kind of the proxy for whether this is a mission-driven founder, mission-driven leader who actually started a company with a purpose and who will see the company till the end um, for the greater part of the person's life, you know, like you think about Bezos, think about um, uh, Jim Segal from Costco, 
I uh, think about um, Warren Buffett with like Berkshire, like, or even you know, uh, Page and Brin at Google, like, that is not Lululemon. Um, I thought Chip Wilson was involved with the company. Um, turns out he no longer is. So, and I had no idea, but they had this whole kind of management debacle, which I found fascinating. Once I learned about how ridiculous it was, I just was very disheartened. So let me share more about that with you. So Lululemon does have a vision. Um, according to management, their vision is to be the experiential brand that ignites a community of people through sweat, grow, and connect, which we call living the sweat life. And I think that sounds awful. Um, I think that kind of mindset, so at least from someone who's actually been training and strength training for the last decade, the desire for sweat, the desire for the burn is everything wrong with the fitness industry. I think that's just going to lead to more people getting hurt than anything. And it's never going to result in any actual growth in someone's fitness level like in terms of strength muscular size etc i digress i'm going on my own rant but sure so yeah sure let's say they have a vision um but i don't think management is committed to any kind of mission or purpose and that's because the founder is no longer involved with the company for one thing uh wilson does have an 8.3 percent ownership in the business but this is down from the 14 percent he used to own but he was practically kind of i guess uh kicked out of the company back in, I think it was 2015. And with that departure, he sold a good chunk of his um, stake immediately in the business. And Lululemon has, is, already, is already on its third CEO in six years. So the first CEO was in 2007 when they IPO'd. Wilson stepped down as CEO and moved, I think, to become the chief of innovation and brand. And he became, you know, he said more things that were politically incorrect. Um, and that just rubbed people of the quote unquote, um, you know, left wing uh, social justice warrior type West Coast folks the wrong way. And I'm not saying I agree with any of it, but I think there's some stuff that I read that I thought uh, people are overreacting once again. Um, but yeah, all that stuff just didn't go so well. And so, he ended up having to, I think, step down one more time. So he was CEO before 2007. And then Christine Day, who was an ex-Starbucks executive, took over as CEO in 2007. And then uh, Wilson had to step down from being a chief of brand and innovation to become the chairman of the company. And Christine Day also left as CEO. And Laurent uh, Potteven came in, who ran Tom's. And this was in 2013, I think. And then Wilson eventually left the company, and in 2018, Calvin McDonald, who is the current CEO, took over in 2018. And the CFO quit in 2020, and the management has been vocal about trying to find someone externally instead of someone internally. I mean, this company's been around for more than 20 years, and the fact that they can't find an internal CFO candidate makes me wonder um, how much more turnover they've had in their senior leadership. Also, if we want to talk about insider ownership, all the directors and executives combined own less than 1% of the business. And so that's over 15 people, they don't even have 1% of the company. So it makes me, it really makes you wonder 
yeah, how aligned are incentives in that regard? And how much do they really care? Um, and I'm just going to quickly jump to the eighth and ninth part of Fisher's checklist, which is whether the management has depth and whether the company has outstanding executive relationships. And the answer is no and no. There's no insider ownership. There's a lot of CFO, uh, CEO turnover. The CFOs quit. And we don't really know why. Um, there's no depth to management. If you look at the entire C-suite, um, the person who's been there for the oldest time is the executive VP of what is Global Guest Innovation, who was in that position since 2016. Everyone else came after that. Um, even if, when I look at compensation, I think it just doesn't make sense because their short-term and long-term compensation is both measured with operating income and net revenue. Long and their long-term compensation is measured over a three-year CAGR, so they consider three years to be long-term. Their options also vest over three years, so that seems to be their time frame. Their growth growth plan is also three years, so in no way do I think management ever thinks long-term, um, given that the past CEO only lasted three years. Maybe that's why. Um, and then you can look at the charts that I provide in the report, but even when I look at the thresholds they use to measure this quote-unquote long-term um, performance for operating rev income and net revenue, it's it's like ask, asking someone to just walk and say, oh, if you can walk, we'll just give you double your money or something. I mean, these thresholds are a joke. Um, yeah, it's just... They either have completely no faith in their business's ability to grow... Um, or, and, or they believe they don't have any brand value for the business. It's just, yeah, it, I don't know. It just really upset me. Um, and it just made me believe that the management team are just a bunch of mercenaries who are just out here to just get a fat paycheck and leave. So I don't think management's really there for the long term, which makes me wonder the value of, um, the business in terms of it's kind of mode potential. But I guess before I go, I'll just kind of cover a couple other points. Um, I think the key things that I want to talk about, one is there's the the quote-unquote sales organization. So Fisher's fourth point is, does the company have an above-average sales organization? Do they need a sales org to peddle products? And this, I think, is what Lou Lemon does extremely well. They have this unique, loyal uh, fan base like that are often called a cult. And I think this is partially by design because um, Lululemon has what they call a grassroots community-based marketing approach where I think they have all these events um, and community partnerships with um, athletes, influencers, and just hardcore aficionados of the product to um, market their own products in that manner. But I think it creates this kind of community element and... People feel like they're part of a club. They have like their own kind of membership program. And I think this builds a strong kind of loyal fan base. And yeah, like when it's, when I know, when I look at like people in my circle who are hardcore Lululemon fans, like they, they will slowly transform their wardrobe from non-Lululemon stuff to nearly all Lululemon stuff. And to be honest with you, like I, I love just going into Lululemon stores because I just love the kind of vibe and experience it gives off. Like it is exactly the kind of stuff that I love. And 
that's the kind of stuff I love about Vancouver. It's kind of like I go back to Vancouver every time I go into a Lululemon store. And maybe they did that on purpose. Um, but yeah, like I could see myself slowly changing my wardrobe out for Lululemon stuff once I can justify the price points. <laughs> but I think that is something that's very key to the business and they're, how they've been able to continue to generate um, quote-unquote like organic growth and sales. Like you have a sales force that doesn't need to get paid and that is so diehard for your business and that might lead to the kind of fifth point which is that's a does the company have a worthwhile profit margin and i think the big thing with lululemon is the stability of their gross margin and their operating margin um, the 10-year average for the gross margin has been 54 percent with the operating margin at 22 percent um, and there hasn't been much standard like there hasn't been much uh, deviation from that average. I think um, 2016 was had there was like one blip where gross margin declined by about six percent from the average number, but other than that, it's been relatively stable. Like 2019 was at 55 percent uh, gross margin and operating margin was at 22 percent, which makes me believe that the company is more closer to like a uh, LVMH the Louis Vuitton holding company more so than Nike like if I think if I look at the margins in that regard I think the big thing that um, was intriguing was when I was learning about the supply chain so Lululemon doesn't own or operate any of its manufacturing facilities um, they just outsource everything all the production um, purchase of raw materials um, so the company really isn't vertically integrated at all distribution is also I think outsourced um, some of them they own but they also outsource it as well and I definitely saw some supplier risk. So on the production side, they have 39 vendors, but five of them produce 56% of the product products. And on the raw material side, they have 76 suppliers. But once again, the top five provide for 59% of the raw materials with one singular supplier providing for 32% of the raw material. So, and also uh, we also consider that None of the suppliers and producers are in North America, at least. Yeah, like no major, none of the major guys are in North America. They're all in Southeast Asia or China. Um, and Lululemon also doesn't have any long-term contracts with any of their suppliers. So they noted that it's a risk that they might not be able to work with them. But given the stability of their gross margins for the last 10 years, which um, the, their cost of goods sold will account for the various kind of raw material costs, like changes in commodity prices um, for the materials that they use, I guess, and um, the various kind of cost bases from negotiations with the suppliers and even costs related to the distribution throughout um, mainly, I guess, North America. Yeah, so all that's part of the COGS, but that has the gross margin hasn't really shifted dramatically, so it makes me wonder if they just really have amazing relationships with their suppliers or if they actually have... Um, I guess, power over their suppliers to kind of control on the cost side, even without having to have any long-term contracts, or maybe they just get super lucky. I'm not sure, but there definitely is some risk on the supplier side, but at the same time, the other side of the coin is that maybe they have really great relations, which are, which might just be really hard to uh, break away for a competitor. Um, but from that standpoint, I thought there definitely is something there that signifies 
an existence of a moat. And I think the moat there is brand. I think what Lululemon has is this unique brand, this unique mindshare. Like they've noted how they have no IP on their fabrics or material. It can all easily be copied. And, you know, apparel is a commodity. Bags are commodities. Uh, but it's just what does the brand signify? And I think that the fact that the business is able to generate returns on capital that average like 30% um, in the recent years and the fact that they have pretty high margins for a apparel company signify the presence of this brand. And if I think about my own life and what I believe Lululemon really brings up in my mind, I think there there is this kind of unique image of this wellness brand. Um, and I think that kind of leads to any opportunity that they would have in reinvesting and expanding it. Um, but once again, I don't think that's likely because I don't believe in the executives. Um, I don't think management really has a vision to make this company into something more than an apparel company, into like a completely unique kind of lifestyle brand, like going the full Apple route and becoming a luxury goods company. I don't think Lululemon has a management team that can execute on that. Um, oh, and the final thing I wanted to talk about was on the culture side. So another exciting reason for me to look at Lululemon was because uh, from speaking with a few people that I, in my network who worked who work in Lululemon, I've only heard good things about the culture. And you know, there's all these amazing perks. You know, you can imagine all the fitness classes, the yoga classes, all the benefits uh, you get, and not to mention you get to have all this Lululemon product at extreme discounts. But even the work environment just seems to be a great place. And the fact that the glass door rating is 4.2 out of 5 with more than 2,000 reviews like that, for me, is significant because there rarely are reviews, uh, ratings over 4 with that many reviews. So that, for me, was kind of a positive signal to look into. And I was hoping they might have shared more stuff in the annual report, but... Unfortunately, no. Um, they did share, though, what I found unique was that they thought um, they do think about providing purpose to their people, and they believe that the purpose to, purpose um, of the company is to help peop- help their own employees, in, quote-unquote, according to them, to elevate the world by unleashing the full potential within every one of us. So that's something the company strives to do um, and strives to instill in their employees and I thought that was pretty unique that they had that in the annual report. And it was those kind of small things that hinted to me that they do still care a lot about the culture. Um, they they note how Lululemon succeeds as a result of the distinctive corporate culture, which I think also results in some people calling Lululemon's culture a cult as well, which I, I consider a good thing um, in one way. So I think they definitely do have pretty outstanding uh, personnel relations, but I just don't know how that works when I don't think management has integrity. Um, anything Chip Wilson's wrote usually kind of stemmed from the Lulim blog and all that seems to have been deleted out. So it's just, it just makes me believe that management will just hide anything that's bad um, instead of like owning up to things. And apparently when Wilson wanted to address shareholders after leaving the company like apparently he had kind of something a two-year ban where he couldn't talk about anything and so he went to come back and speak to the shareholders but apparently he was denied by the board and the incumbent management 
So Wilson just publicly put out this letter to shareholders on what he was going to talk about. And I think, like, I read that letter and it makes you be really thankful that Wilson isn't running the company because it's it's just a bunch of bullshit about how Wilson's just ragging on the management team for not ha- having a great stock price and he focused on, on bullshit metrics like net income. So it just kind of showed me that Wilson probably was not the right person to be running the company either, despite him being a founder. Um, but ma- But the incumbent management and board members not giving Wilson the chance to do that showed me that they just were filled with so much fear and they're just, it's just, you know, classic employee management. Um, like they're just in it for the job and yeah, I just couldn't get comfortable with them ever being honest um, and doing what's actually right for the long term. So yeah, that's my take on Lululemon. Overall, a disappointing uh finding on the company that i had high hopes for but that's what it is most companies out there will will suck and the more i look at the more i'll uh be okay with that hope this was interesting for you and if you want to read more about the kind of full 15 points worth of stuff that i talk uh wrote about then please check out the actual article at omdventures.com um it's in the episode show notes as well so yeah check it out and i'll Talk to you again tomorrow. Take care.